Welcome to the... <laughs> no, 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 I can't do that. Let's try another one. Uh, how about this? <laughs> no, no, that won't work either. Let's try this. get on board with that. Let's roll with it. Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. Holy cow, guys, I am blown away by this interview. My guest today is Taylor Branch, a Pulitzer Prize winning author for his book series, America in the King Years. He also wrote a book called The Clinton Tapes, in which he describes the nearly 80 sessions he had with President Bill Clinton during his two terms as president. Taylor is also mentioned in pretty much every Bobby Kennedy book, of which I've read around 10, whereas a 21 year old, he has an encounter with Bobby while he's running for president in 1968. Spoiler alert, Taylor was actually campaigning for Bobby's rival for the Democratic nomination. We talked for over an hour and a half, so I broke this into four episodes. In part one, we focus on his time spent with President Clinton. In part two, we discuss his books on Martin Luther King and the civil rights era, while also diving deep into the philosophy of nonviolence. In part three, we talk about his encounter with Bobby Kennedy. And then in part four, we talk about his book writing process and his favorite books of all time. Each section has amazing stories that you really won't want to miss. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. Now, let's hear part one of my interview with Taylor Branch. Okay, I am joined today by Taylor Branch, uh, an author, journalist, historian, Taylor... How do you describe yourself when you get asked that, that question? I'm kind of a historian, but not an academic historian. I'm a writer who specializes in history. Okay. I think that's fair based on the things that I've, that I've read uh, that you've done. So let's jump into it. I want to start with the Clinton tapes. And um, I actually both was reading it and was listening to the Audible, which you recorded your voice uh, on the Audible, right? Yes, although although most of those audibles are severely abridged, but yes, that's the only one I've ever done because that book was written in the first person. Oh wow! Well, I'll have to go and check and see if it. Uh, maybe that's why it didn't match up. That makes sense. I have to ask you this question: Was the saxophone that played was that Bill Clinton playing the saxophone? Is I have chance? no idea. I doubt it. <laughs> okay, they do this really. They do at the end and the beginning like a saxophone, and I thought, wouldn't that be perfect if that was President Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> no, I doubt it. That would have gotten him involved in the production, which is unlikely. Gotcha. Okay, so let's go back. You you met President Clinton when you were both younger and in Texas, correct? When we were 25. We wow. were sent to Texas to run the McGovern campaign 
because the regular Texas Democrats were feuding so badly they couldn't find anybody in the state that wasn't anathema to the other half of the state. So they sent Clinton and me in to um, try to make peace among the warring Texas Democrats. Wow. So, so tell me, first impressions of President Clinton when you guys got to know each other? I'd known him a little bit in the anti-war movement uh, in the late 60s. We'd met a few times, which is why we knew we were comfortable to take on this assignment together. He, he was known as somebody who was um, very ambitious and a friend of Senator Fulbright of Arkansas, who was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and kind of leader of the Senate doves on Vietnam. Um, in that sense, he was kind of the conservative wing of the anti-war movement, talking about can Congress end the war, uh, when other people in our little groups that we would meet were talking about demonstrations or finding another um, presidential candidate uh, or, or other more aggressive alternatives, because um, there wasn't that much chance that the Congress would be able to end the war. Mm. Gotcha. And um, one of the things that you always hear about President Clinton, like so many people have told me stories that he has this this uh, magnetism, he has um, a memory, like you can't believe where you'll meet him and then six years later, he'll remember that five minutes he spent with you. Did he always have those qualities? Like, did you look at him and go, this guy is going to do something one day? Or were you just like, he's just another another guy like me doing his thing? No. <laughs> well, it's a mixed answer. He He always had charm. Uh, we called him a mixture of Elvis and and LBJ, um, <laughs> even when we were 25, because he loved politics and he exuded that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't notice the phenomenal memory until 20-something uh, years later when he was in the White House. And it is true, his, his memory was just incredible. Not only would he remember people that he hadn't seen for years, and I saw him do it, walk into rooms and just make an instant contact with everybody, but he would remember the votes in every precinct in some weird election, you know, and go through it and just reel it off. He just, and it was like he enjoyed living there in, in that memory. So, but I didn't see that in Texas. Um, I knew that he loved politics, but neither one of us, um, we joked about it later, perceived a great skill in the other or a great political future because we lost Texas by 30 points. Um, that, that's one of the worst shellackings you'll ever see. So we, we weren't really counting on a great future. On the other hand, he went straight from Texas to Arkansas to begin running for attorney general. Uh, he was like the Energizer Bunny in politics, and, and that was a constant. Whereas Hillary and I, you know, Hillary roomed with us. Uh, he brought his girlfriend. Um, Hillary and I went back to Washington. We were more alike. We were more uh, disconsolate over the continuation of the war and the ratification of the war uh, by electing Nixon, which we knew would mean uh, more years of, uh, of, of severe conflict and death in a, in a war that didn't make sense and that we ultimately lost. Um, so Hillary and I were more discouraged. He, he, he kept going. Yeah. Um, it's just such an amazing thing. You were with them. And then here you are, you came back and were asked by president Clinton to work on this project with him. Um, where how many recordings it was like 70 or 80 recordings that you I think it was 79, 79 over the eight years. It took us a while to get it set up because all he wanted to do at first was to find out if there was a way um, to make sure that the that the the data that the records kept by his administration would be good enough for historians to be able to recapture his presidency the way I was 
writing about Kennedy and Johnson because we had lost touch with each other since Arkansas, since Texas. And, and um, he read my books and he said he read all the footnotes <laughs> and that they came from presidential libraries and here, there and yonder. And he asked me to interview some of his incoming cabinet members about what kind of records they were going to keep and give him my unvarnished opinion about whether they would be good enough for a future historian. He said, when I'm dead, um, to re really reconstruct what happened. And I did, and I interviewed these people, and they all said that they didn't believe in notes. It was a way of going to jail, and that if they did take any notes, they were going to take them home to use them for their own books. Um, so I told him that that wasn't going to happen, and that by far the best historical tool for capturing the presidency are the recordings uh, that I was listening to of Johnson and Kennedy, and those were extinct since Nixon got thrown out of office on account of his recordings. So uh, to make a long story short, we devised the idea of an ongoing oral history as the best substitute we could come up with for the absence of tapes and, and responsible uh, records. I, and I, and I found, uh, I felt like I was going with you through that journey as, as I read and then listened to the book as well. Um, and what, what was so interesting is I don't, I don't know if you're a fan of the West wing, the, the TV show, but it, it felt like elements of the West Wing where I felt like I was in there with you guys in the residence or wherever you were meeting. Um, are you a fan of that TV show? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, um, it, it's not quite as good as Borgen, which is the Danish, Danish West Wing about the first female uh, prime minister of Denmark. Um, but there are a lot of good shows that try to that try to capture uh, the the richness uh, of life at the center of an administration. You know, dealing with the press and the rest of the government and and the public. Yeah, well, I'll have to check Borgen out. That sounds really interesting. Um, one of the things that I was surprised by, and actually, I found it in both um, Parting the Waters when it when it came to JFK, and um, it seemed this, the same with President Clinton that. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it seemed that 80% of their headspace was on global initiatives. Um, and I, I don't know why I was sort of surprised by it. It just seemed like it was most of what was consuming the both of them. Um, certainly you had the Cuba missile, missile crisis and everything. But like when you were with President Clinton, it, it was a lot of um, foreign affairs and, and global initiatives, wasn't it? Well, I guess so. Maybe, that may be because they're a little more complicated See, my challenge was to explain my interactions to him to an audience that that wasn't talking the way he was. He was in the middle of it. He wasn't trying to to bring everybody up to speed. Um, and foreign affairs, when you're talking about um, uh, Bosnia or or Northern Ireland uh, and a lot of those crises that that really did preoccupy Kosovo, th those are really complicated. So they take more space. And, and perhaps even China, um, because China was one of the, um, it was a recurring theme beyond its, its importance, because it was the one time that he was most frustrated that he couldn't make political, that he couldn't make personal contact with a foreign leader, which he always believed was really crucial. You can have the best ideas and the smartest policy wonks in the world, but if you can't react to people that you're dealing with and on a personal basis, you're not going to get very far. And he was very frustrated by his relationship with uh, the, the Chinese leader. Yeah, I got that. And I, and I got that in the book, the, the times when he was able to spend time with those leaders um, that he felt that that absolutely was the way toward, you know, reaching agreements. 
Um, there were a couple of really touching stories in the in the book, and one was um, when you guys went to play golf with President Clinton, and I believe your son uh, was was playing. And I just I, I was reading that, thinking, was there ever a moment where you sort of stepped out of yourself and were able to go, I can't believe I'm this is happening to me that my son is playing golf with the president of the United States, or was he always, you know, Bill that you hung out with in your, in your twenties? No, no, no. There were, there were a lot of moments like that. And, um, when, when I pinched myself and said, uh, I'm recording this for history, that's my, my mission. Um, but I'm, I'm really feeling the, the, the sweep of history, um, because I'm getting to watch how, a, a U.S. president's mind works. And, you know, and I think he was being, you know, it was stream of consciousness. And and um, what was interesting was that I would ask him questions about what had happened. And if he thought that the public record was fairly uh, uh, sufficient, he would say so. We don't need to talk about that. He only wanted to talk about the things that that he felt uh, were were not covered by the by the the news or or or, or the regular things that he had to keep secret. And so I really felt that it was confessional and somewhat like a diary. You know, it's one reason it's the biggest disappointment of my career, the, um, uh, the reception of that book um, was not very good. And it was because, uh, as far as I could tell, it's because the Clintons have been so politicized for decades that... I got in trouble either for a kiss and tell book that betrayed his secrets and talked about what his legs looked like in his underwear or uh, how Hillary had a dream about Henry Kissinger and asked me to interpret it or stuff like that. And and people thought that that was a betrayal or more people said that it was a book that um, uh, that that tried to justify the Clintons, that it was a political uh, whitewash. Uh, trying to make him look good. Uh, to me, the significance of the book was that it was an effort um, consist with consistent discipline by a president to show in real time what it was like to be president, how often you're, you're helping Chelsea time a take-home exam when you're trying to decide whether or not you're going to order an airstrike <laughs> in Iraq um, and that sort of thing. So to me, it was uh, short of having tapes, that, that was our goal, is to try to ha, try to forge a record that would help the American people understand what it's like to be president. Uh, well, I'll tell you, I, I felt that. And I felt, I mean, I felt you were very fair. Like, I, there were times, like, you didn't give him a pass on things, or you just reported and said, this is what he thought, and I wasn't so sure. I, I thought you did a great job with that, but I can see, like... And, then, and he got mad. He got no mad. Way, because- really? Yeah, he got mad because I put too much per, you know, the book came out in 2009. Um, was it nine or eight? Oh, no, it was 2000. It was when Hillary uh, was running against Barack Obama. Yeah, maybe she was secretary of state under Obama. And and he knew that she wanted to run for president one day. And she said, I put too much personal stuff about Hillary in there. Like uh, like Hillary saying that um, I don't know if I can say that the Dick Gephardt um, calling him nasty names and um, on the tape and the tape was running and the president said, Hillary, you can't call him that name on the tape. And she said, well, he is, you know, like, 
<laughs> and I put that in the book. And he said, you know, she's kind of count on Gephardt to deliver Missouri. I can't have that. But it turned out he called me. He doesn't call me very often, but he called me maybe a year later. And without even saying hello or anything, he said, you were right and I was wrong. People like those personal things about um, <laughs> Chelsea's bleeding feet and, you know, uh, in, in ballet and how she wasn't the most gifted, but she was the most determined. He was proud of her. You know, I put that stuff in there and he yeah. was mad because he said that embarrasses Chelsea. And, and, and he said Chelsea actually liked it. So you never can tell when you when 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 you try to when you try to be honestly revealing uh, how it's going to be interpreted. Now he seemed, based on reading your book, he seems like the person that as soon as he read the first either draft or however he read it, he immediately would have reached out and and chewed you out about it. Well, he did. He and of course his aides wanted to edit it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I didn't send this to you to edit. I sent it to you as an advanced copy. Uh, if I let you edit this book, I couldn't respect myself. Uh, so they, of course, you, the psychology of, of AIDS uh, around powerful people is very strong. They're highly inclined to view themselves as the only loyal people and everybody else as up to no good. So um, they viewed me as up to no good because I wouldn't let them uh, edit the book. <laughs> it sounds about right. <laughs> um, there's also a story where I think you and your wife are um, sort of in an impromptu way going to spend the night in the residence and, and there's no pillows. And uh, I think maybe Bill, maybe both of them are helping look for pillows around the place. And it's interesting to me because I've read a lot about the 60s, for example, and books about JFK and Lyndon Johnson. And um, specifically, I read one of uh, someone in the Secret Service wrote, and they talked about the difference between how JFK treated everybody around him and then Lyndon. And, and to say Lyndon wasn't the nicest guy maybe is an understatement. It seemed like President Clinton was a genuine nice, is a genuinely nice man. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's fair to say, and and that if you talk to the butlers and the um, and the ushers and uh, the valets, I mean the personal staff in the residence, I think they would say the same thing. He knew all their first names, uh, he knew their families, uh, uh, so it was interesting to 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 watch that. Now, of course, when you're up in the residence, there wasn't any Secret Service up there, so uh, mm. Secret Service doesn't come up in into the residence, but. That one night when Christie, who was a speechwriter uh, and had to stay over writing a speech late, and it happened to coincide on one of the times that Clinton said at 2 a.m., I've got more to say, but I don't want you to go home and come back. Can you just stay over? So I stayed over. I said, but Christie's still over in the in the in the uh, EOB, the executive office building. Uh, and he said, well, bring her over, too. So when she came over, Hillary was gone somewhere. Um um, he looked for a bed and he couldn't find the pillows and he called and the valet staff and the usher staff were all gone. So he was literally searching down in the Lincoln bedroom and the Queens bedroom across the hall for a pillow and couldn't find it. Um, and then walked all the, 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 the corridor in the residence is really long from one end to the other. And the Lincoln bedroom and the Queens bedrooms on one end and his bedrooms at the other end, we walked all 
all the way back down. He said, Hillary's gone. Here, take Hillary's pillow. And then he insisted on carrying it all the way down the hallway um, back to our room. And we're saying, we can carry this pillow. You don't need to do that. We've got to get up early tomorrow. And we're trying to do some more recording before he starts a day, you know, that's scheduled minute by minute. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't imagine... Knowing how his day was scheduled, which I think is like most presidents, the contrast between how uh, that and how Trump's day seems to be scheduled is, you know, watch Fox News for five hours, tweet, um, run around and stuff like that. I don't think that he has the the run of legislative meetings and, and, and that sort of thing. But but Clinton certainly did. And here he was insisting on walking back down the corridor to make sure that we knew where to put our pillow. And that must have been like, I know there's moments where your family, I mean, we could, there's so many stories I'd love to dig into, but I want to get to some other topics. But that must have been one of those moments where your wife was just like, I can't believe the president of the United States is giving us his pillow. And like, this is just <laughs> got to be surreal. Well, she had, she worked um, for Hillary as Hillary's speechwriter uh, in a period that, that cruelly coincided with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Mm-hmm. So this is late. Uh, this is late in the in the presidency. Um, so we went through that with Bill and Hillary, um, um, you know, a marital crisis and, and everything else. And just to watch how they handle that um, politically as opposed to personally. Personally, it was awful. Uh, and he was in the doghouse and they were on the verge of divorce. Politically, she was more vociferous in defending him against impeachment uh, than he was. So it, it, it was very, um, uh, there's no, I couldn't have made that up um, uh, to see the richness of, of, of how they reacted during that period. But um, Christie was, uh, Hillary traveled as much as she could. In retrospect, Christie says she benefited enormously because during Monica Lewinsky and impeachment, Hillary did not want to be in Washington, so they traveled the world. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> they were gone a lot on wonderful trips to Italy and Morocco. <laughs> sure. Well, you, you talked about the schedule, another moment in the book, and this also comes out as you, as you write about Martin Luther King, um, the, the level of exhaustion. And there's a moment in the, the Clinton tapes where I believe you're talking to him and I can't remember if it's late at night or just at night, but He's literally falling asleep sort of mid-sentence and maybe, I don't know, 15 seconds, he's, he's like asleep and then he wakes up and then is right back into it and does that over and over again, right? That's, you know, I'd forgotten that, but yes, that's a very, that's a vivid memory. He, he would do that. He, he had that kind of exhaustion. And I think, and I know Martin Luther King uh, had it probably to an even greater degree because he was, um, he knew how, serious America's race problem was. And he, he was trying to preach America into fundamental commitments to, to justice and traveling just nonstop and all around and then trying to, trying to manage um, a very, very contentious movement and run a church and do all that together. So he was exhausted all the time. You know, Harry Belafonte told me that he developed a, um, a nervous tick where he would, his, his, his face would jerk. Um, and um, and he, it was on the Tonight Show actually that Harry told the story that he asked Dr. King what happened to the tick uh, not long before he was killed, and he said, and Dr. King said, "I made my peace with death, and the tick went away." But he was still exhausted. 
Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Um, last question about president Clinton. And then I do want to talk about, um, America and the King years. Um, at the end of the book, uh, president Clinton says to you that he's the same guy that you knew in Texas. And I'm just curious, cause you don't really react to that. You just sort of state that that was something he said. Um, what was your reaction to that? Was he the same guy? Uh, clearly he, he had changed in some ways, but same guy deep down. Yes. I, I, in the sense that no, no matter what he's gone through as a two-term president of the United States, uh, who's a world-known figure, um, if I didn't see him for 10 years, I could run into him and you reestablish rapport instantly. There's some people like that in everybody's life. That happened actually when he asked me to work on the project uh, before he'd even taken office. Uh, he sent word to me and we hadn't seen each other for 20 years. And uh, when I saw him, it was in a huge crowd and he came over very quickly and, and said, can you believe this? In a, with a big twinkle in his eye and, you know, just I'm the same guy. And then he asked me this thing about reading the footnotes in my book and would I take this assignment? And he was gone. And in, you know, in the space of 30 or 45 seconds, he reestablished a personal contact and astonished me that he was thinking about presidential records before he'd even taken office, you know, and how he could find out uh, what the quality of them would be. So, um, yeah, he was he was a pretty he was he's a remarkable character. Sure. Yep. OK, so that uh, again, I can't recommend that book more to people. I absolutely love the inside look at um, just a a uh, presidential life, but specifically around President Clinton. It was phenomenal. You just heard part one of my interview with Pulitzer Prize winning author Taylor Branch. As the additional segments of our interview are released, I hope you'll consider checking them out as we got into some really incredible stories from his journey. <laughs> Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com. And I really do appreciate you listening. <laughs>